The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Okay, so uh, today on Boss Talk, we, are, we have the founders of Substack, and so we are going to be talking um, about their unbelievably exciting journey in the, you know, what's been kind of a short um, and very, very fast start to the company. Um, you know, it's immediately gotten attention, uh, you know, as, as it should for something that's truly profound. So um, we are going to get into all that. We're going to get into, uh, you know, what it means for the past and future of media uh, and uh, how that's all going to play out. So go ahead and ask your question, please. Well, you know how I love the drama. So I just want to go ahead and open up with why are we freaking out about Substack? <laughs> so I, that was the New York Times. That was, uh, the, I don't know, when did they write that article? On April the 11th? And I just want to hear from Substack on what they thought of that article. We don't mind when people freak out about Substack. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Um, yeah, what do you think, Hamish? Why are we freaking out about Substack? I don't know. I think um, mm. it's it's a it's a big shift for a lot and who work in the media and have paid attention to the media in quite a short time, and especially it has happened very quickly in the pandemic. So um, some people are freaking out about it, and some people are um, really pumped about it. Um, I think. I think it's just, it's kind of a lot to process for people at a, at a difficult time when lots of things are going on and that sometimes can lead to, to freak outs. But yeah, I think it's all productive. It's all for the good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Substack is, you know, the point of the company is building a better future for the human mind by putting readers and writers in charge, right? Like we're making a subscription yeah. publishing platform and, you know, it really is about putting readers and writers back in charge of, you know, in the case of readers, what they're putting into their mind, who they want to trust. And in the case of writers, you know, giving them true independence, right? Giving them the freedom to write uh, the, the things they think are most important. And that freaks people out, apparently. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the founding story. Like, how did you get to this idea? And then, you know, how did you put the company together? And then when did you know, oh, wow, this is a good idea? So we were, uh, I was taking some time off after my last company. Um, I was doing a bunch of the things you never do when you're starting a company, you know, seeing friends and family, uh, you know, <laughs> have, having hobbies, like all of those things that you just never get to yeah. do. And of, I've always been. <laughs> it's, read it's books. Yeah, read books. I was literally like hanging out in my local public library, like reading genre fiction <laughs> by the window. It was the, it was the life actually. Uh, I don't know why I, I, ever, <laughs> I ever left that. No, but uh, I've always been an avid reader. And I've always thought that, um, you know, great writing is valuable. You know, what you read shapes how you think, how you see the world in a very real sense, who you are. And so great writing, like great software, is this very high leverage thing to do uh, for humanity in this general sense. And I've always been a reader, but not really a writer. So I thought, hey, I'd like to try my hand at this writing thing. I'd like to write an essay or a blog post or something. I started writing down kind of my frustrations with the 
media ecosystem and the state of the incentives, you know, the basic thesis being, hey, social media is kind of breaking our brains. You know, we've created this, we've sort of unwittingly created this vast ecosystem that incentivizes outrage and insanity, and it's, it's tearing the world <laughs> apart and making us all crazy. I wrote this down in an essay. I sent it to my friend Hamish, who's a writer, um, mm-hmm. and he was like, you know, this is kind of not very original. Anybody can complain about this stuff. If you're so smart, what are you going to do about it? And that conversation became Substack. <laughs> That's funny. So you needed a Substack to get your ideas out. <laughs> so that, and do we yeah, do like, go- That's an awesome story. And do we want to explain a little bit what it is, what is Substack, if there's someone in the audience who's not super familiar with it? Yeah, so Substack is a subscription publishing platform for independent writers. So if you're a writer and you want to uh, publish directly on the internet, you know, you have a website, it sends out via email, you take uh, paid, you know, subscription payments directly for your work, we make that dead simple. And I and ideally, I bring my own subscribers, right? I'm, you know, people who are interested in reading me, you know, I, they they come onto the platform, and I drive those. Yeah, yeah. You can bring your subscribers if you have a following on social media. You can point them there. If you have an existing mailing list, you can bring it to Substack. And if you're writing one of these things, you know, the thing that we that that makes the whole thing work is if you're writing something that people care about, it also has this natural growth rate. So you're sending it out, people are liking it, they're sharing it, and you kind of get this growth from people that think that there's value to what you're making. So and no ads, right? No ads, no nothing. It's just subscription fees. So there's no, none of this ad economy involved. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, uh, no autoplay videos, no, none of that. So what, what in uh, social media was kind of, what were the mechanics that were rotting people's brains and making them stupid? And then how did, you know, how have you engineered Substack to not do that? And then kind of what are the cultural principles that you need to build the company to not evolve or devolve into that same thing that you kind of created the company to stop? That's a great question. I think that the, the, the problems with social media aren't uh, the result of somebody kind of tenting their fingers and trying to do something evil. I think it happened with kind of the way the first generation of the internet played out. So there was this massive land grab for attention, right? Like people used to get bored. Used to have this problem where you're like, I have <laughs> 10 minutes and I don't know what to do with it. And like, yes. that used to be a real thing that would happen to people. And we just, like, it's easy to forget that now, but that was, a, that was a thing. So there's this massive land grab where it's like, there's all of this attention out there that is just laying around and we should get it as cheaply as possible. And the economics that grew up from that, along with the idea of like, no one's going to pay for things on the internet. We have to make it as easy as possible. You know, we created these free to use platforms whose incentive is to maximize engagement at all costs, right? So if you're Facebook or your Twitter or your TikTok or you whoever, your job is to keep people there, right? It's to be as addictive, as engaging as possible. And that's not a, you know, you're not trying to create something bad, but it turns out when you create an incentive structure that prioritizes engagement at all costs and your users are human beings, there are certain types of things that bubble to the top, right? You get things that are cheap outrage. You get things that are polarizing. You get things that are like the clickiest, the dunkiest, the most drama-filled thing. And when you make a, an ecosystem that is designed to amplify that stuff, you end up with certain 
you know, the, 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 <laughs> the emergent behaviors that we see that are less than ideal. And this is what we were talking about when we were writing this founding essay. The, mm -hmm. You know, we we're talking about what is the solution to this, right? Can you just tweak the algorithm? Could you just do heavy-handed content moderation and solve the problem that way? And the conclusion that we came to is that you cannot because the problem is the underlying business model, right? The problem is that ultimately when you're on Twitter, you are the product. And the only right. way to fix that is to have different laws of physics, right? Is to say, you're going to be the customer. You're going to be the one that's paying for the thing. And so the pitch to readers for Substack is like, take back your mind, right? Stop spending your life and your attention on these feeds that are kind of designed at cross purposes with you. And instead, you know, pay for the privilege of deciding for yourself who to trust, who to spend your attention on, how you want to spend your limited kind of life on this earth. And it just turns out that that's a good, a good bargain and it gets writers paid at the same time. And can I, just before we go on, just to, you said, you know, you mentioned some of the things, right? Some of the incentive problems. One thing you didn't mention, do you care about the problem of the echo chamber also that it creates, right? Because I, I probably want to read things that I, I don't want to read people who disagree with me. Uh, so that's also a phenomenon you find on Facebook, Twitter, and these places. Is that also something you care about, or that's not something that was fundamentally flawed with those systems? You know, you might be surprised. One of the things that gives me the most heart with Substack is I read the comments when somebody like launches their paid publication, and without fail, I'll see a bunch of people who show up and say, you know, I kind of hate you and I disagree with you about almost everything, but I find your perspective valuable and it makes my life richer to have it. And I think when you give people the choice, when you give readers the choice of who, how they're going to spend their attention and who's worth inviting into their mind, people actually will make that choice well a lot of the time. Not all the time. You know, we don't see our, we don't think our job is to sort of force you to eat your vegetables and tell you, you know, you should read X, Y, and Z. But a lot of people do crave that. A lot of people do want, you know, a, a true diversity of, of thought and, and to read people that they find interesting that they disagree with. The problem on social media is that it's not actually, <laughs> you're not actually choosing, you're kind of like clicking on the things and, and rewarding the things that kind of just speak to you at a lower level. And it's not even the things that you agree with necessarily, it's the things that either are kind of like maximally you agree with or maximally you hate. Like the thing that, the, the thing that, the tweet that does the best is the thing that only the true fans will really love and will piss everyone off else off the very most. That's the perfect tweet. And on Substack, the dynamics are just totally different. Uh, yeah, I, interesting. I will say the, 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 for, the format kind of lends itself to a more sort of cool, calmer engagement as well. Like on, on the tribalism that you're sort of talking about, this silos was happening already on social media. And it happens in a more vicious way in social media where it's kind of performative outrage at the other camp to signal to each other who's in the in-group. And it happens very fast and with short bursts of content. Where in Substack, most of the time, it's a more considered decision-making process by the reader and the writer. And these arguments play out in a slower way where someone has to thoughtfully put down their argument and then thoughtfully seek uh, and consider rebuttals to that argument. And we see that with particular writers like uh, Zainab Tufachi. She is paying people to present the best opposition to the argument that she just made. And she has this as a feature in her newsletter. Uh, the newsletter is called the, cool the, the Insight. Yeah, yeah. and Andrew Sullivan does the same thing. He does this uh, section in his newsletter, The Weekly Dish, every week, uh, where he publishes dissents that are sent in as kind of like letters to the editors. And then he has to defend his position and defend his previous column against those dissents. 
And so I think the format of um, this kind of publishing model is much more conducive to that kind of good faith engagement than something like Twitter or Facebook. And I'm curious, uh, Ben asked about the cultural question. I'm very curious about that, what the answer to that is. So you said you want to build a better future for the human mind. How do you make sure that that is a cultural principle that actually happens in your company, right? Because, you know, you're going to hire a lot of people and, uh, you know, things get a life of their own. Uh, how, how do you actually make sure that that's, that's what the company actually will do? I think there's a lot of answers to this. And there's a really simple one that is underrated, which is, you know, you have to know what you believe and you have to be willing to live up to it, basically. <laughs> and it's, mm -hmm. that's not a very satisfying and complicated answer, but it's, you know, it's harder than it sounds on the surface. And I think the most important way you can do that is when you design the business model of your company, when you set up, because when you're a startup, you kind of get to choose your, your win conditions a little bit. Like you get to set up, what is our business model? How do we, how do we succeed? And if you set that up correctly, and if you set it up in a way that's aligned with your values, it makes it a lot easier. You know, if you, if you end up with a business model that's pulling you in a direction that is opposed to your values, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to give up on your values or you're going to fail. And so we thought about this a lot with Substack. We said, we only want to make money when writers make money, right? So there's no world where we're peddling false dreams to writers. You know, we're going to make money when they make money. When they make more money, we're going to get more money. So we want them to succeed. And we're going to have independent writers. They can leave whenever they want. You know, they can take their email list with them. They can take their relationships with them. And so we're going to have to earn and keep their trust. And so we've put ourselves in a position where if we don't live up to the values, if we don't live up to the promises we've made to writers, you know, we're screwed. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of easy in that way. And then you just have to be willing to, you know, walk the walk and, and tell people clearly, like, kind of what we're here to do. And it, it attracts the people that, that want those same things. So we've talked about social media, but the, uh, as Felicia said, the people who are really freaking out about you, reacting to you as though you've kind of found some deep flaw in their armor is corporate media, um, kind of traditional media, uh, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, places like that. So what is kind of wrong with their model uh, that Substack fixes, or is there nothing wrong with their model? I'm, gonna, I'm interested to hear Hamish's thoughts on this, but my take on this is a lot of it is they're just swept up in the same big dynamic. A lot of what's broken about traditional media is just the same thing that's Twitter broken brain that, that gets to everyone. Um, and it's, it's not a matter of like, oh man, you know, obviously the internet came along and broke a lot of the business models. So people are adapting. And then also everyone just exists in this wider space and is obsessed with all of the things that are going on in social media. And that leaks into all of these old institutions and sometimes uh, breaks the principles that they, they were founded upon. Um, what do you think, Hamish? Well, I think I don't think Substack is here to replace traditional media, which I think is kind of one of the fears that people who are in traditional media have. And I understand why they have that sort of uh, worry or concern they've like in many cases they've worked really hard to get to the top they've made it to the top they're looking at the um the general landscape and the general kind of environment for media and it's not looking promising and so uh silicon valley companies in the past as well have come along and sort of made grand promises that haven't panned out for for writers and for journalists 
And so it can be easy to uh, mistake good intentions for, <clears throat> for something that's more like chasing that VC dollar or something like that, which is not at all the case with Substack. I see Substack as enlarging the ecosystem for media. And it clearly is if you see what's going on. It's not here to re replace traditional media. It's here to give writers more options and give readers more options. And I think the large institutions like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, um, Washington Post, they're going to be just fine. And they've got lots of resources. They're in a strong position. They can keep cultivating talent. They've got their own business models that are generally working. Uh, the middle class of the, the media institution, like those, that tier below the New York Times is struggling and was struggling before Substack came along. And what needs to happen is that there needs to be in the kind of broader media ecosystem more, um, more attempts to provide business models that work and Substack is one of the attempts. And we're not claiming that it's going to be the only thing, that this is the thing that eclipses the sun and takes over all the media industry. But it, it, is, an, it is an offering and it is working uh, in some cases at least. And we think it can work in a lot and can go to really interesting places. And I think people will come to understand that over time. But in this moment of flux, it's easy to get anxious. Well, let, let me ask a more pointed version of the question, because it seems to me that you know, a lot of the people who kind of are worried about Substack are kind of bishops in the Catholic Church. They've excommunicated some people from the church. They've, you know, people have become apostates. And then those people are going to Substack. Yeah, they burn the witches and then the witches are back yeah. making four, four times as much money. Saying, yeah, they like that dynamic is pretty real or it seems pretty real where, right, the, the, the witches are... Or, you know, it's the witch's revenge. <laughs> you know, some so how do you think about that? And, are, you know, um, you know how, do you, how do you think about, okay, you know, Glenn Greenwald was excommunicated uh, and now he's on Substack. Um, are you doing a good thing? Or are you doing a bad thing? And then over time, what does that mean? You know, some people want to paint Substack as this like anti-institutional force. Right, like we're somehow here to to kind of tear down the existing order, and I actually don't see it that way at all. Like we're kind of believers in institutions. We think that the big, you know, we we're believers in the big, you know, the big institutions that that guard journalism, and we think they're they're good and need to exist. And we don't think institutions should go away, but we do think they should be better. Right. We do think we don't want to have no institutions, but we need to have institutions that that work and, and do their job. And part of the way that you do that is by allowing dissenting voices to be heard, allowing real critique to exist and exert pressure on you know, the existing institutions. And I can see why it's uncomfortable if, you know, if, if Glenn Greenwald, who you tried to kick out, is, is there sort of pulling your pants down and pointing, pointing all the things that are going wrong. But in the end, I think that's actually a healthy thing and it will help those institutions being subjected to this pressure and not being able to, to sort of silence critique, but have the critique land and have to, you know, respond to it and live in a world with it makes those institutions better, even if it's uncomfortable for them. And it creates sort of this next place where new institutions can be born, right? People that are not from the, the sort of gilded set of people that get to, you know, do unpaid internships and join the New York Times, have a place where they can start. And you can kind of have this wild energy where new things are being created. We think all of that's really important. I, I think it's also important. 
it's also Sorry. important to note that it, it, it wasn't just like it wasn't a case of Glenn Greenwald necessarily being excommunicated, and whether it's him or or Charlie Wazell or and Helen Peterson, that it's them opting out. It's them choosing independence because they see the benefits of independence, which is in some cases to have intellectual freedom. In some cases, it's to raise the ceiling of what's possible in terms of how much money they can make from their work. And in some cases is to pursue the kind of work that they and their readers find most meaningful. And so like, I, I don't think it's just a case of like some of the ex, the excommunicated finding a home here on this different island, but I think it's people seeing opportunity and going after it. And that is a really great thing for the development of the ecosystem overall. And you said that, you know, um, one of the cultural principles or, you know, to make better future for the human mind was that you should absolutely only make money when writers make money, right? You're aligned with that. So, you know, one writer, he doesn't write a lot, but, you know, he writes short tweets is Donald Trump, right? And he has a lot of followers and uh, is not welcome on a lot of these platforms. Would he be welcome to something like Substack? I'm not sure he'd do that well on Substack. <laughs> That was kind of funny. <laughs> That's a little bit comedy at the Apollo. Let's get back serious. But uh, yeah, but I'm actually curious. Like, you know, he's like, is there limits to who could get on the platform and who could write? And you know how, like, or it's you know, it's whoever can drive big subscribers. I'm just curious where is there a line to be drawn or not really? Yeah, and we actually, you know, we wrote down our philosophy on this. This is one of the ways that we sort of work on these principles just kind of try to write down what we what we believe and we basically the answer is we take a really strong stance in favor of freedom of the press you know we think if substack is about putting writers and readers in charge we have a really strong default that you know writers have a have a right to a free press and readers have a right to choose for themselves what they're going to read like if you're if i'm signing up to get emails from you and you're sending me emails the bar that you'd have to cross to make us want to intervene in that uh, is very, very high because we just think that it's a basic matter of, of free press. Um, but it does exist. You know, we don't think that we're, we don't take the stance that like literally anything on the platform has to be fine. You know, we have a, a set of narrowly construed rules that if you cross we're you know, we don't have to host you, but we take a really strong kind of like stance uh, in general. If I take someone else, then, you know, if we say, and the reason I'm asking, it's like these, what happens with companies, like, you know, is that once you become successful and the revenue comes in, you know, it's sort of the revenue drives you in a certain direction, right? And at some point you might have to say, you know, I can't do this or we will do this or not. Like, for instance, if there was sort of a, a big QAnon, uh, you know, writers that would get a lot of subscribers, uh, like what's, is there anything that, you know, like that, that, that you would say, no, like that's not welcome on this platform for reasons X, Y, Z. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's stuff, there's, you know, if there's things that are in contravention of our narrowly construed, you know, content rules, I think in general, QAnon probably wouldn't do well on Substack. Like, I think in practice, the the things that, because we've designed the model um, to put people in charge of how they're spending their money and who to trust, um, it's actually hard to do well on Substack, um, peddling the kind of stuff that plays really well on social media to be, to be frank. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, once you get into the, once you get into the corners, it becomes interesting questions. Well, one of the things um, that you, that you do that that's actually been oddly controversial to me um, is uh, 
you have a pretty good idea of who is going to do well on Substack to the point where you actually are willing to pay advances. Um, so tell us about that, that, you know, what is that model when you pay a writer before uh, he or she starts writing? And then um, why did that upset people that you were advancing money? Yeah, so the basic story here is we've had a version of this conversation because we're seeing everyone succeed on Substack and we, we sort of see this model working and we're like, holy crap, this works really well. And then we go to a writer and we'll say, you know, did you know you could be making three times as much as you're making on Substack and you'll be independent and you can do the work you think is most valuable and you own your list and your content and blah, blah, blah. And they say, you know, if all that were true, that would be amazing and I would do it tomorrow. Of course, that sounds amazing, but I don't believe you, right? It's easy for you to say you're going to make X, Y, Z. You're asking me to take all the risk. And we looked at the numbers and we were like, well, you know, we could take that risk. We could say, we, we are so confident that you're going to succeed that we can pay you a minimum guarantee the first year uh, and, you know, recoup most of the revenue and then revert to the original deal in the next year and so on. And if you don't feel like you can take that risk or you're somebody that's in a more precarious financial position where you'd love to do this, but you don't kind of have the you know, financial freedom to take a flyer on your rent for a few months, we can kind of help kickstart your independence in a way that is, you know, we take some of the risk that is on net profitable to Substack or, you know, is at least break even for Substack. And mm -hmm. it works really well. Um, and it's been a tremendous tool to like help people get started and achieve independence who otherwise never would. And I think people, the reason they say they're mad about it is because, you know, you're, you're, you're supporting person X or you're not disclosing thing Y. But I think a lot of the real reason is people have gone public and said that they're making tons of money and people are mad about it. Ah, <laughs> people are mad. Everybody hates to see other people succeed these days. It is really uh, uh, amazing how deep the scarcity uh mindset has has become hey hey miss you were going to say something yeah i was just going to say it's, it's part of this thing about substack still being understood um and people come to grips with what it means and what this ecosystem looks like and that's with kind of limited information and lots of speculation and lots of sort of chatter on twitter some people jump to the conclusion that what we're doing with with these deals is kind of akin to hiring writers when it's much more akin um, to actually like a bank deciding which loans to give or, or a venture capitalist deciding which startups to, to bet on. Um, and we kind of are of the view that writers deserve to be treated in similar ways to founders are treated by VCs. They've been undervalued for so long and um, not properly respected by the kind of economy <laughs> that it's time that writers got, uh, got invested in in these ways and got and and we're like really, we feel really lucky to be in this position where we can demonstrate our confidence and our belief in their kind of, you know, to put it grossly, like market value, by putting numbers in front of them that make sense for them and that are exciting to them, and they take away the risk of starting something special like an independent publication. And have they been undervalued because they've kind of been bundled and bundled into a giant bundle and then distributed? Uh, kind of in an old-fashioned way, or you know, what 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 has been the cause of that? There's definitely the the, the bundling, and also just the the economics of the whole industry have been shifting. 
right? Like the, the, the economics that used to support a large amount of written culture, the kind of like local monopoly on distribution for a newspaper that is the only source of good advertising for local stuff kind of went away. And this went away, you know, long before Substack burst on the scene. So the industry is kind of undergoing this big shift. The internet killed a lot of the old business models and then made a bunch of new business models possible that weren't obviously there before. Like people had paid newsletters before the internet. Uh, actually, interestingly, that was a real thing. You'd like mail newsletters to people and that, that was a thing. But at the scale that's possible now is just sort of like just starting to be there. And so there's this new field that's opening up that's showing kind of connecting writers more directly with the economic value that they've always been able to create. And I think just people are starting to catch on to what's possible. Yeah, it's kind of a return to the past. You know, Mark uh, used to always talk about, you know, all the founding fathers had their own newspaper, um, which they would write in sometimes pseudonymously. Um, and, you know, uh, also like attack uh, their their enemies in it and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, it used to be individuals kind of publishing, you know, the equivalent of Substacks, uh, you know, around the Revolutionary War and in, in, in that time period. And there, Mark, you yeah, might go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. So this was so the origin, the origins of journalism in America are different than I think most, most people think. Um, and so basically. So, so it started with printers. And so like literally you had printers running print shops and they didn't have enough stuff to print. And so they started printing newspapers. Um, and you know, they started, they started making their own newspapers. And so this is literally like the life story of Ben Franklin. Like he was a successful commercial printer who then diversified into actually producing his own newspaper. Um, and then he, <laughs> right. Well, kind of like, kind of like if Chris had a Substack. Yeah, for example, right. For example, well, Chris, this is a great, great business plan for you to follow. So, um, yeah, so, um, so then he produces this, uh, you know, newspaper, and of course it has to be like a no local newspaper, and what I think it was Philadelphia at the time or whatever. So like the market's not that big for it. So, you know, he needs like content, like to fill the newspaper, and so he starts writing the content. And literally, what he does is he creates over the course of the next few years, he creates fifteen uh, sock puppets, um, to use the modern term. So he creates uh, fifteen fake personalities under fake names, um, and then writes, you know, basically these long form, you know, essays on behalf of them, and then sets them against each other. And they have like these like vicious fights, right, in the newspaper, like attacking each other and saying all kinds of scurrilous things about each other. Right. Um, and so, you know, and part of that is like, you know, just entertainment value and selling newspapers. But part of that is like it, it, tur it turned out there were th some things to discuss at that time that were, uh, you know, both important things uh, and then also, you know, very politically heated things. And of course, in those days, you know, if you said the wrong thing in print, you know, you could get you could you could get canceled, you know, the, the old way. Right. Which is, you know, King George would have you executed. Um, and so, you know, the, the, a lot of, you know, both the, the, the frivolous stuff, but also the serious stuff was all happening under, under pseudonyms. Um, and then this, this ultimately culminated in the, you know, what now is known as the Federalist Papers, right? Which was like whatever, uh, was it Marshall and Adams or whoever, um, you know, basically, you know, kind of fully articulating the whole theory, um, you know, of what became the United States uh, under, you know, using pseudonyms. Um, and, and like, and that was journalism, like that, everything I just described, like from, you know, the, the scandal sheets all the way up to like the founding philosophy of the country, like that, that, that was journalism. And, and the, the overlap with what these guys are doing, you know, is just like absolutely astonishing. And it's just so striking how both that period and what, you know, these guys are doing, what Substack is doing, how different both of those are from what we consider to be quote unquote the media. Yeah, no, it's it, it, so fascinating in that um you know maybe this whole idea of these giant um centralized bundled publications 
is the actual anomaly. And it was always meant to be, you know, great, you know, writers with great ideas um, expressing themselves and and uh, doing that independently. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I find that almost all the writers that I used to kind of follow are now on Substack. <laughs> so it's very kind of aligned with me. But Chris, you talked a little bit about who might not succeed on Substack. Uh, who does succeed on Substack? People who succeed on Substack have a distinct, basically they're non-fungible writers, right? They're people that have some perspective that their readership cares about that they can't get anywhere else, whether it's a distinct voice or a distinct expertise or a distinct philosophy or some sort of longstanding trusted relationship that have been built up over time, like the kind of writer that you would follow anywhere is the kind of writer that does really well on Substack. Um, that's sort of the secret. We, at, at the start, we had a shorthand that we called them sort of outsider nerds. They're like the kind of person that has some distinct perspective um, that you can't get anywhere else. That's and, and who are, you know, in my estimation, the people that most likely to move society and culture forward. Yeah, that, you know, that's... It's, it's just, oh, go ahead, Hamish. Uh, I was going to say, like, to build on that, the outsider nerd thing is like outsider in the sense that they don't fit comfortably in the dominant media structure. And nerd in that, like, and this is like, we sit, use these terms in the most affectionate possible way, but nerdy is in that they're like especially knowledgeable, knowledgeable or passionate about a particular subject. And so they have a distinct worldview, they have a distinct voice, and they demonstrate a real quality of thought that sort of sets them aside from the great masses. It, you know, that's yeah. it's such an interesting concept that you said, Chris, which is kind of non-fungible. <laughs> I like the crypto kind of illusion, but not <laughs> non-fungible writer, because I remember kind of when the Internet, you know, kind of got it going, going on uh, on the whole news thing. And the thing that was so horrifying to the big publications was how fungible news was, um, that there were so many completely interchangeable writers that you would just go to the free one. And that's kind of what, uh, you know, turned the world upside down. So it's very interesting that, you know, the percentage of writers that are non-fungible are actually the interesting ones for Substack um, because that, I think that was what was revealed about the bundle was, you know, it was a relatively low percentage of those. And I have a question for uh, Chris and Amish. Um, so this is awesome, like, you know, the non-fungible people that maybe don't fit into the media and the mainstream media, this is, this is great. You know, it's democratized in some sense, right? Because people can decide, what, choose what they want to read, and those people can freely share that with them. Is there also evidence of people that, because many of these folks are already famous in some ways, right? They already well, were, were well known. And as Amish said, they decided, they chose to pick this platform because it gave them more freedom and they still get paid. Is there also evidence that there are now people that just start on this platform and can kind of go viral or at least go big enough that they can make a decent living on it? Or is it mostly people that are already pretty well known? We actually think the majority of the opportunity for Substack and for platforms for the model like Substack is people who are not famous writers today. Um, and, it, you know, I think there's a there's a perception that everyone who's big on Substack already had a huge following and was well known in media circles that comes from the fact that that's who everyone is obsessed with 
And so you kind of, people follow the story of so-and-so well-known writer. Um, but there's, there's lots of people on Substack today who were not professional writers who are making vast sums of money doing very important work, um, filling some need that has always been this potential for value, but never existed. Or like there was never a clear model for how you would do that. Right. So you get people, you know, like Heather Koch Richardson, who's a history professor that's writing about the state of American politics. You get people that are writing about industries who come to us and say, hey, all the coverage of my industry is is nonsense. Like nobody who writes about it understands it. Everybody in my industry wishes there was something better. But, you know, we're well paid and we don't want to, you know, no one's going to go and write about this thing. But now I'm going to start a Substack, and that goes on to make tremendous amounts of money because there's this this unmet need among readers that can kind of pull forth these, you know, these non-fungible voices. I think if Substack lives up to our ambitions, the vast majority of the people who are making the money, you know, five years from now are going to be people who, but for this model might never have been writers because it never seemed like the best option until, until some, something like this came along. So it's journalism in some sense. Yeah. And, and then how much, um, do the, does somebody like Heather build her own audience, and then how much does Substack uh, kind of help with that? And then, you know, how much money does somebody like that make? So people, you know, people build their own audience to some extent. Like there's, in general, the model is like some people, you know, people are sharing it on social media. There's some sort of top of funnel there, but also a Substack itself has sort of like a growth rate, right? If people love the thing that you're writing, they'll share it. They'll send it to other people. Other people will discover it and come and sign up, like fall in love, put down their email, sign up. And we've built the product to kind of maximize that funnel, like make it so that if people love the thing and they want to share it, that that works. And we're also, you know, this is one of the main things we're working on right now is making it easier for people who come to Substack to find, you know, find new great writers to fall in love with. Um, I'm not going to talk about how much any individual person is making on Substack because it's kind of private details, but there's, you know, there's many people making millions of dollars a year on Substack. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) From uh, not professional to millions of dollars a year. yeah, we should get get on this yeah. platform. We're not making any money on this boss talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but um, one question I had, I mean, one thing I find fascinating is that uh, the original model of media, uh, newspapers and so on, was subscription-based, or you pay at least. It's payments-based. Then it was sort of disrupted by these internet companies, which are all ads-based. And now it's back again, kind of to its roots, where it's no more ads, no more sort of this, you know, whoever is paying for it gets to pick the eyeballs and gets to sort of distort things their way, or at least bias things their way. I'm curious, can can it also go more mainstream in a sense that these nerds that are, uh, you know, not fungible, can, it, can, can this become more of a mainstream also model of how people actually consume their um, news and other things, uh, or is it more for, you know, the kind of the ones that you call really fungible nerds? If I could nitpick for a second, I would say yep. it's actually, it got disrupted by earlier than the internet, kind of the penny papers. Like we, mm-hmm. this is the fascinating part of the history here is, um, you know, the idea of ad supported newspapers predates the internet and was kind of this 
weird local aberration in the the business for of for news that created a bunch of these these sort of like things that we talk about like the the giant bundle the local monopoly the mm-hmm. idea of a disinterested you know quote unquote objective uh, newspaper that that uh, has to kind of cater to a broad swath of the population rather than taking a, a view. Um, this is something we actually wrote about in our founding essay. I don't know if Hamish, you want to throw in any fun details there before I get back to the, the real question. No, I mean, it happened about 200 years ago. Benjamin Day started, uh, I think it's the New York Sun. It was a penny paper. With the innovation being that the thing would be mostly funded by advertising dollars and then they could give it away, or like almost give it away, do mass distribution. But before that, yeah, subscriptions, this, this is an old model. Paradise Lost was first distributed as a subscription product. Yeah. And the, okay. So, so the question of like, will, will anybody pay for these things? Is this a mass market thing or is this just something that kind of crazy people do? This is the big objection we got when we first started Substack. People were like, yeah, it all sounds like this, the writers are going to get a bunch of money. They're going to get true independence. They're going to own their work. That all sounds great, but nobody's going to pay for these things. So it's a moot point. And I had this parlor trick where I would, you know, somebody would say, I would never pay for a writer on the internet. And I would say, great. Who's your favorite writer? And they would say, oh, it's so-and-so. Well, would you pay for them? Oh yeah, I'd pay for so and so. That's different. They're great. They're they're such and such a thing. And I do think that we're in a moment where the pendulum on this thing is swinging back in a major way. Like again, in the first generation of the internet, there was kind of like everything's going to be free. No one's ever going to pay for things again. That's kind of like the the reigning wisdom. And I think we're we've gotten to a place where people have realized and gotten comfortable with the idea that paying for something better is worth it and is not weird and is like a normal thing to do. And there's this growing dissatisfaction among not just nerds, but the general population that, hey, my social, my diet of media right now, whether it's my social media feeds, whether it's my cable news, whether it's my you know big institutional subscriptions is not serving me the way that I want. I don't feel like the, the feeds, the things, my information diet, the things I'm putting into my mind are making me better, are, are serving me the way that I want. And if I could pay for the privilege of taking back my mind, of choosing my own heroes, of deciding for myself how I want to send my attention, that would be worth it. I think that's a mainstream thing. I don't think that's a niche thing. I think it's a, something that's going to be very big that maybe started with a, started with a niche few, but is not going to stop anytime soon. Wow. Yeah. If- if I'm a writer, how many kind of subscribers do I need to kind of quit my job? Depends how big your house is, I guess. <laughs> well, like let's say I was a writer for Vox, and then I, yeah. well, but I, can... but I'm a non-fungible Vox writer. I'm not one of these fungibles. Um, and I come over <laughs> to Substack. Then how how do how, how many kind of fans do I need to go? Okay, this is a much better thing for me. This is kind of part of the magic of this model is, you know, you can do the math. If you're charging a hundred bucks a year and you have a thousand subscribers, that's a hundred thousand dollars a year. If you're charging 50, maybe you need 2000. So you, you kind of get to this place where the small single digit thousands of people that deeply care about and value what you're doing becomes a sustainable mm-hmm. business. And the kind of work that you want to do when you need to have a thousand people that really love this and care about it, it's just different than the kind of work you want to do, you know, to try and get a million people to click on a thing or to try and get a bunch of, you know, boost your LinkedIn stats or whatever, whatever else you're yeah. doing. Um, well, what's the kind of price thousand, point that's, 
like because you know the consumer market better. Like, what's the price point that you would kind of tell me to to price my Substack at? Your Substack. Our general thing is like if you're writing, if you're making something that people are going to pay for themselves, you know, think <laughs> about something that's like five to ten bucks a month. If you're writing mm-hmm. something that people are going to put on their corporate credit card, you can charge a lot more and you should. Um, ah. So depends <laughs> on what you want to write about, but you could charge right, a lot. Right. Okay. Very interesting. And do you have a lot of uh, kind of people who are that kind of, you know, kind of professional audience writers or, or is it mainly kind of the regular consumer who's not charging it to their corporation? It's a good mix of both. And it was actually a surprise to us. Like we were very confident early on that the business use case was there. And the question was, you know, will everyday people pay for these things? And I mean, the answer turns out is, is both of those work really well. Uh, got it. Um, <clears throat> and so I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. no go ahead. Well, I'm, I have a question on culture. Uh, you know, uh, I'm asking the tough questions here, but um, you know, Given so it, it makes a lot of sense the vision that you have and it makes a lot of sense that it's democratizing this choice and letting also the people write whatever they want and also get paid for it. I'm curious internally at the company how do you make sure that you stay true to your kind of ideals? Do you guys have a take? I know it's a little bit of a side thing, but right now one of the hot topics is can you bring politics to work or not? You know, and there's been different takes on it. We saw Coinbase say that that's not okay. Basecamp had a you know write up on that is. Do you guys have a take on that or it's earlier on? You don't have to really tackle these issues yet. I kind of feel like by the time you're having the kind of conversation that they had at Coinbase or Basecamp, you're in a tough spot already. Like I kind of feel like there's something has gone wrong upstream of, of that place that you get to. Um, you know, the, this may be because we're small and because we have sort of the luxury of being in a, you know, an earlier place. But I do think that that being clear about what you stand for and what you're, what you're doing and being thoughtful when you hire um, are the key levers you have as somebody build, building a business to get to the right place on this stuff. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I mean, the reason I'm asking is because, you know, once you have a thousand employees, those principles need to be clear. And, you know, if, if it goes one way or another for Substack, that might influence, you know, how they, what opinions they have on maybe very popular people on Substack. Right. Yeah. I mean, you'll, you're, you're kind of a magnet for that kind of internal conversation, um, you know, where, you know, you, you may end up with uh, employees who don't agree as much with your freedom principles. And so how do you think about that? Freedom of press. Yeah. And we, you know, I think this, this matters a lot internally. This matters a lot of, you know, we talked about why is, why is Substack get so, so much coverage in the press and everybody seems to love us or hate us or be mad about us or for whatever reason be talking, be talking about us. I do think one of the things we thought about when we started the company is we knew that we were running towards the fire on the culture war stuff. Like when we started the, started the company, we were thinking about, you know, everything that's gone wrong with our information ecosystem and how that's all kind of leading to a crazy place. And this is, this is, this is a big piece of the motivation for me personally about why this problem is worth solving. And so, you know, we're, <laughs> we're kind of running towards the fire, right? We're running to mm-hmm. the heart of this craziness that's taking, you know, making everyone nuts. And, you know, 
we sort of just have to like be willing to grapple with that and be willing to do the hard things in a way that I think is different than if you're kind of like a widget maker and, you know, mm -hmm. you've got people in the press, you kind of want to do harm mitigation or whatever. But if you're Substack and the, this idea of, of free press and this idea of changing the, the, you know, underlying mechanics of, of culture and how this stuff works, you have to be willing to just grapple with this stuff and do the hard things, right? Like think about what you, what you believe in, talk about it persuasively, right? Like attract the kind of people that resonate with what you're doing and repel the kind of people that don't if necessary. Um, you know, all the basic things that every company has to do, I think we have to do, you know, the same, but more so, I guess. There's a pretty strong signal put out into the world as well by looking at the writers who are on Substack. Like from day one, we are pretty determined to be host to a broad range of views and not to just create left-wing Substack or right-wing Substack or uh, perfectly in the middle Substack. And so there are going to be writers who you know are publishing on Substack who you disagree with or who you might even find objectionable. And if people do disagree with that and do find that as a deal breaker, then maybe they don't want to end up working on Substack. And so we look for people who are comfortable um, in an environment where there are going to be views that differ from theirs. And we think that is a healthy thing to encourage. And how do you, how do you think about, so one of the big kind of uh, features of centralized journalism uh, is kind of editorial and create and curation. And so how do you think about those two in terms of the platform? Like, will you ever, you know, editorialize or will you ever um, curate? Yeah, you do a little curation now, sort of, um, but, you know, and then how much, you know, if you do too much curation, do you fear kind of becoming like social media where you're chasing the money um, and just putting a very narrow kind of set of ideas in front of people or, or like what are, what's your philosophy there? For us, the number one thing is that the writers and the readers are in charge. So the writers own everything. They own their content. They own their IP. They own their mailing list. And it's up to us to serve them and keep them happy. And if we don't do that, then, then they can leave. <laughs> um, and that's a good pressure for us to have. Um, overall, like we very much think of ourselves as the platform that people build their publishing businesses on. And that means giving them that ownership and taking no sense of ownership over the, their editorial in any way whatsoever. Um, and saying that, we do do a little bit of light curation to shine a spotlight on some voices that might not otherwise be picked up by the kind of ranked by revenue leaderboards that are on substack.com. So we do some uh, a little bit of community-focused work where we help to shine a little bit of light on interesting writers who are on Substack. And in doing that, we take the same sort of approach in that we're not like trying to create a Substack that has a particular ideological bent, but we're trying to feature a broad range of voices. Yeah. And I think that would and, add and is, oh, go ahead. When you think about that process, it sounds like a human process, um, you know, that at scale might turn into an algorithmic process you know, how, how do you keep that from slanting, uh, you know, the whole platform? The thing about algorithms is they're neutral. Like the, the mm -hmm. using an algorithm doesn't make things good or bad. The question is, what is your objective function? 
right? Like what are you maximizing for? And if you maximize for that thing, what emergent behaviors do you expect? And so if you're maximizing for engagement, if you're saying, hey, I want to get the things that get the most clicked on, that keep people glued to this thing the most, um, even if you kind of have no slant or you're kind of, you just sort of set back and say, okay, algorithm, find the thing that gets me the most engagement, you're going to end up with certain things bubbling to the top. And so we think the magic of Substack isn't necessarily never use algorithms. It's more like pick the right objective function. And the objective function on Substack is earn people's trust enough that they want to pay for you. And so if we had a, if we had the perfect feed that could maximize our revenue, if we were a purely greedy capitalist and we did nothing else, you know, our goal would be to introduce you to writers who you fall in love with enough to want to pay for them. And if we do that, we're kind of doing the right thing in our estimation. Like this is why the Substack leaderboards are ranked by revenue. Because anytime you make a leaderboard, anytime you make a discovery feature, people are going to game it. People are going to play the game and figure out how to like get their, their most juice out of it. And so we rank by revenue because it's like, go ahead, game it, right? Like figure out how to convince people that you're worth it in their life to pay for you. And if you game that, like you're playing the right game. Uh, so it is – so that that's interesting. So you are, in a way, it is a greedy capitalist algorithm in the sense that you're going to show the substacks that have figured out how to make the, much, the most money. Um, but in your view, those are the right ones to show. So it's aligned. Yeah. This so it kind of goes company. back to the – yeah. Point your greedy capitalist cannon in the right direction and, and fire. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Um, and then how do you think about discovery of uh, new voices in that sense? Because obviously, if I've been in the game a long time, uh, I may have built up a huge base of subscribers, where if you're even more interesting and you're brand new, then you're not going to be on the leaderboard. One of the best things that writers do naturally on Substack is curation, right? You talk about, you know, do we want to do curation? Not really. But one of the great things that people do naturally in newspapers is curation, right? One of they'll have a section for links. Like, here are some things you trust me. Here are some things that I'm going to put you onto that you might not otherwise have discovered. And that's part of the value that I'm bringing you. And so we see mm -hmm. lots of people on Substack helping each other like pointing you, you know, if, if you're the writer that can put me onto the, the new writer who's great that I might not have discovered yet, that's a valuable service that, that you can do for your readership. And so we kind of want this stuff to be bottom up, right? We want it to be something that's coming from the writers and the readers themselves who are in charge rather than something where the, you know, the platform has got something saying we want to maximize our new blah, blah, blah. There's an example of this uh, where a, a few writers have banded together uh, Casey Newton is one of them, and Helen Peterson, uh, Delia Kai, Charlie Warzel, and and a few others to offer themselves as kind of a package um, on on the side. It's like a, it's it's a Discord thing at the moment. It's called Side Channel, mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. help sort of lift each other up and promote each other's work and give. Uh, if you're a subscriber to one of their publications, you get access to all of their shared community, and that's the kind of stuff I mean, we love to see, where where writers are like in the in the kind of in similar ways in the old days of blogging, like linking to each other and having each other on each other's blog roles. And that's, that's a good way. That's a good future for peer to peer recommendation with it that we think is a, a good way to help those newer writers come up. That makes a lot of and, sense. Yeah. Go ahead, Ben. So I, I was going to say, maybe you could, 
you know, because we're coming up on the hour, kind of leave us with your view of kind of the future of Substack and its place in the world. Um, you know, so it is what it is today, but you have, you know, many, many plans. And I don't want you to kind of share any, you know, super secrets or anything, but just kind of, you know, what's the vision for, you know, what it's going to mean for writing and the world and, you know, or how it's going to make us, you know, kind of smarter <laughs> and not as agitated. Yeah. So I, you know, I go back to, we're building a better future for the human mind by putting writers and readers in charge. And so everything we're doing is kind of like giving writers what they need to go independent, taking down every barrier that stands in the way of a writer who thinks they could do their best work independent and, and making it easy for them, whether that's software, whether that's the platform, whether that's legal, whether that's, you know, there's a, there's sort of like a whole package of things that, that uh, come along with that. And we think that if we can make that barrier really, really low, it will massively increase kind of the, the, the GDP of, of valuable writing that can exist. Because all of these people who might never have become writers, who had something to give to the world, um, and that there's like an avid readership out there waiting, hungry for it that exists, but you know, who might not have become writers before, if Substack can help them become writers, that the kind of like, you know, the same way that the rideshare industry is bigger than the taxi industry, the, you know, the market for great thoughtful writing will be much bigger than it was kind of like before uh, the internet came along. And, you know, if we can pull all that off, you know, we can expand, you know, there's more, you can branch out from there into even other things, right? Writers are wanting to start podcasts. Writers are wanting to have communities. Writers are wanting to have, you know, kind of this, this long, deep array of things. And we think that there can be kind of like a, a whole alternate universe that's powered by, you know, putting readers and writers in charge where readers are subscribing directly to the voices they trust that will build a better future. That's awesome. All right. That's, that's a, that's a beautiful vision. And, uh, um, with that, Hamish and Chris, thank you so much for coming on Boss Talk. Um, this has been a, an amazing discussion and glimpse into the future and, uh, and look back at the past. Um, so thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. Uh, thank you for everybody who helped start the room and we will see you next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks for having us. So thank Goodbye. you. That was a great conversation. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.